One of our convictions as a church is that we are not a follower of any people. We are a follower of Christ. So this isn't my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church. And so we, Christ is the one who rules our church. So we say Christ rules our church, and he does so through the word of God. So if you think about it, Christ rules our church through the word of God. We all alike stand together under the word of God. And because of that, that's what we do on our Sunday mornings. We open a passage of Scripture, we read through it, and then we, I try and explain it so that we can all hear what God is saying through it. So I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're moving through the book of Hebrews, and today we'll be reading from Hebrews 7, 11 through 28. Um, just every, every week, or almost every week, this goes up behind me. It's a good, good to remember, from shadows to substance, a word for weary Christians. It's a good summary of the book of Hebrews. So as that flashes up every week, just remember that. So uh, Hebrews 7, 11 to 28, and just to show that we are all under Christ and looking to him, let's stand for the reading of his word. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there, be, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus, or that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were uh, prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all 
when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You can be seated as we pray. Father, every Sunday morning we gather, and we gather to be fed by you, to be reminded of our hope, to be uh, pointed to Jesus again. We need that. So work by your Spirit. Give us faith. Help us to actually hear what you've said. And then, as we go from here to discuss it, to pray about it, and to live it out. We need your grace to do this. Every one of us, including me. So, as we look to your word this morning, work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Can we talk about the phrase, new and improved? I find it a bit redundant. I mean, why would someone create a new product except to improve it? Insert all your cokes about, or insert all your jokes about Coke too, right here, right? You never hear something that is new and inferior, or even new but still on par with the old product. When you're making something new, you're admitting that you didn't quite get it right the first time. So don't make it new unless you think you can improve it. And don't tell me it's improved if you've already told me it's new. Contained in the very idea of something being new is the thought that the old was insufficient. And that's kind of the line of reasoning that applies in this passage to the priesthoods of Levi or Aaron and Melchizedek. If Levi's order of priesthood had been perfect, God wouldn't have announced the coming of his Messiah through a different order of priests, the order of Melchizedek. So our passage this morning is about the new, improved priesthood we have with Jesus as our priest. And the passage divides quite nicely into two main sections. So verses 11 to 17 are about the insufficiency of, of the old priesthood, kind of proving that from Psalm 110. The insufficiency of the old priesthood, verses 11 to 17. And then verses 20 to 28 are about the sufficiency of Jesus' priesthood. And it does so, it shows the sufficiency of Jesus' priesthood by comparing it to the old system. Under both those headings, the insufficiency of the old priesthood, the sufficiency of Jesus' priesthood, there will be Three points supporting each section. Now, you may be here this morning joining us in the middle of our series on Hebrews. So you're hearing all this talk about Melchizedek and priestly orders, and it might sound a bit weird. So I want to give you some bearings, and maybe even if you've been here a little bit, uh, but in and out, it'd be good to be reoriented. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who are suffering from what we've called spiritual anemia. That is, 
with regard to their spiritual vigor, they'd grown weak, lethargic. And the cause of that is that they'd grown accustomed to a diet of milk instead of of meat. So they needed more nutrients, more substance in their spiritual diet. And that's why the author of Hebrews directs them to dig deep into the Old Testament to learn the riches of Christ. It was by studying the shadows that are there in the Old Testament and how they find their fullness in Christ that these Christians who are weak would find the strength to hold fast to Jesus amidst all that the world threw their way. You see, rigorous, Christ-exalting study of the Scriptures was the only thing that could provide the nutrients they needed to cure their spiritual anemia. And what was true for them today then is true for us today. So orienting then where we're at in the book of Hebrews, we're in chapter 7 to 10. And in chapter 7 to 10, he delves into the priestly system of the Old Testament, showing how that shadow of the priestly system found its substance in Christ. So chapter 7 focuses on Psalm 110 and its reference to an obscure Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. In verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7, which we looked at last week, it goes to the three verses in Genesis 14 where Melchizedek is introduced. And it kind of teases out the implications of that. And then the rest of chapter 7, verses 11 to 28, which we're looking at today, show how Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted in our passage, applies to us today. So chapter 7 is Melchizedek. Chapter 8 focuses on the new covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31. Chapter 9 focuses on the tabernacle and the inauguration of the new covenant. And chapter 10 focuses on the sacrificial system. So you got Melchizedek, you got the new covenant, you got the tabernacle, and you got the sacrificial system all covered in these chapters. All these are shadows, shadows in the Old Testament that find their substance in Christ. And as we dig deep into this kind of rich meat, our feeble faith is strengthened. So that's kind of what Hebrews is doing. And that's why we're studying an obscure man like Melchizedek. That's why today we're going to look at this 18-verse commentary on Psalm 110, verse 4. So let's dig in. And let's begin by looking at the first seven verses, verses 11 to 17, which I've given the heading, The Insufficiency of the Old Priesthood. Let me just say this about the Old Priesthood. Back in the Old Testament, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt because he wanted to dwell with them. He wanted to be their people. But there was a problem with his ability to dwell with them, and that is we as descendants of Adam, are sinful people. We have in our hearts a certain rebellion against God, a certain hardness of heart. So if God's going to dwell with the sinful people who are actually in rebellion against him, something has to be done. So he establishes this elaborate tabernacle system along with a priesthood and a system of sacrifices in order to facilitate his ability 
to dwell with them. So when we talk about that old priesthood system, that's what we're talking about. That Levitical priesthood or that priesthood of Aaron. That system, that old priesthood and all it entailed, verses 11 to, uh, 11 to 17 are telling us, was insufficient. And they show us its insufficiency in three ways. First way, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? You're trying to think through what the argument in 711 is. It goes something like this. Psalm 110.4, which is quoted later, your priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that was written by King David well after the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. So you have the Levitical priesthood established, then King David comes after that in Psalm 110 and talks about someone coming after the order of Melchizedek. And it predicts, after the Levitical priesthood, it predicts the rise of another priest who's not from the Levitical order. The idea then is if the Levitical priesthood had been sufficient there would be no need for a new priesthood to be prophesied. So that the fact that there is another priesthood prophesied in Psalm 110.4, it proves that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. It's kind of what I was trying to make in my opening, the point I was trying to make in my opening illustration. God wouldn't have promised a Messiah Savior that would come from a new order of priests if the old order was sufficient, God would have arranged for Jesus to descend from Levi. He could have had him be a priest in the order named after Aaron, Levi's priesthood. But in Psalm 110, hundreds of years after God set up the Levitical priesthood, God calls for his Messiah to be after the order of Melchizedek. The need for a new means the old was lacking. So that's the first argument, that's the first reason why the old priesthood was insufficient, arguing from Psalm 110. Reason number two is given in verse 12. Basically, its argument is that if there's a need for a new priesthood, there's actually a need for a whole new system. Think about if I had some beautiful tapestry woven from just 12 strands. Long, long strands, but all interwoven, forming this one beautiful tapestry. And then I told you, one of those strands needed to be replaced. You would know, if I was taking one of those strands out, it really meant the whole thing needed to be replaced. Because you can't pull one strand without the whole thing coming unraveled. And that's how it was with the Levitical priesthood. The tabernacle system, the sacrificial system, all of that was so intricately bound up with the Levitical priesthood. God is saying the Messiah will come from a different priesthood. He's saying the whole system is going to change. That's what verse 12 is saying, so listen to it. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. You see what it's saying? It's not just the priesthood that's insufficient. 
It's the whole system bound up with the priesthood. This is actually, I think, where things get interesting. I want you to focus with me for a minute because this is, uh, I think, takes a little bit of paying attention, but it's a really interesting way the Levitical priesthood relates to Christ. Because we need to keep in mind that God ordained the Levitical system after he'd already established Melchizedek's priesthood, right? Melchizedek's priesthood was back in Genesis 14, before God laid out all Levitical priests. So God did not start the Levitical system Realize, oh my goodness, this isn't working. I can't, people just can't follow it. What am I going to do? I got to go back to the drawing board. Uh, I knew I'll come up with a new priesthood that Jesus will come into. No, he knew what he was doing all along, as Genesis 14 shows. So he sets up this system, and as Hebrews unfolds, as it digs into the various elements of this system, we realize God carefully crafted the entire system in a way to point forward to Christ. The system was a prefiguring in a certain way of Christ. It put all the basic components in place to show that we would need Christ. So it shows the need for a blood sacrifice for sins. It shows the need for a priest to mediate between us and God. It shows that there's a need for a unique place for God to dwell with his people. I could go on and on. But in each of these points, they're pointing the way to Christ. And yet at the same time, built into these components is a designed flaw. Because it fails to really be able to deal with our human condition, the condition of our hearts that are bent towards evil. Now did you catch that I said it was a designed flaw? When God designed the Levitical priesthood to point forward to Christ, he designed it with certain design failures to make clear that they were just shadows pointing to something greater. God designed the Levitical system with design failures. Let's say, for example, that I was a brilliant inventor and I invented this tab that you could put in your mouth and experience whatever full-course meal you wanted to experience. And yet it gave you only the nutrients that you would need in a required daily serving from one meal. Brilliant. But let's say that I knew that the public was not ready for such a thing. I needed to prepare the people for it. So I invented a precursor to that tab, a tab that was kind of a, a multivitamin, but that tasted really good. So I knew with that kind of thing, a tab that would taste really good but give you all the vitamins you need, I could get into the market and kind of establish a habit for the people so they could prepare the way for the greater tablet I had. So I, told, I sold this vitamin tab for a while, knowing all the while that I would replace it with my full meal tab. The vitamin tab couldn't give you all you needed. But that was intentional on my part because it wasn't the end goal. It was invented merely to get the public used to a pattern setting the table for the true invention 
that I wanted to introduce. Where does he come up with this stuff? <laughs> but that's what God is doing with the Old Testament. It's designed with limitations so we could see it's not the ultimate. Christ is the ultimate. But it's designed with patterns that prepare us for the ultimate. And so within that, Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110 remembers the psalm that David writes saying, a Savior is going to come from my line who I call my Lord, and he's going to come after the priestly order of Melchizedek. He'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. That's, that verse is like a flashing neon sign telling us the Levitical system and all it entails is not God's ultimate design. It's insufficient. It will be replaced. So if you're tracking with me so far, in verse 11, the fact that Psalm 110 prophesies that God's Messiah will come from a different order of priests proves that the Levitical priesthood was insufficient. Verse 12, if one strand of the Levitical priest is taken away, the whole system must change and then we get reason number three for the insufficiency of the old priesthood. And it's given in verses 13 to 17. It's basically this. Jesus' arrival makes it all the more clear that the old system was insufficient. So his arrival makes it all the more clear that the old system was insufficient. Has anyone ever told you you'll know it when you see it? When I lived in East Texas, I had grown up as, you know, kind of a city boy in the suburbs of Chicago. And I got to Texas, and I was getting directions to someone's house. And they said, when you're driving down the road, you'll see a yellow pickup truck. Veer left. <laughs> they didn't quite get what they meant, so I asked them questions. No, 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 there's, there's a fork in the road, and there's a yellow pickup truck, and make sure you veer left there asked a few more questions. Didn't really get it. Didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But what did he say? You'll know it when you see it. So here I am driving down the road, maybe a little too fast on the country road, flying along. And all of a sudden, is that a yellow pickup truck parked in that person's front yard? The weeds growing all around it? Slow down, back up. Oh, sure enough, you don't notice it, but the road veers left just right there. And it, you would miss it every time if you weren't miss, looking for that yellow pickup truck. So because of that sign, I knew this is the way to go. That's kind of what Psalm 110.4 is like. It's this, yeah, you'll know it, you'll see it. I, I'm laying out the clue, but then when Jesus comes, it's like, oh, okay, now I get it. And that's what verses 13 to 17 are trying to tell us. So first it points out that Jesus, when he did come, was not descended from Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. Look at verses 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one's ever served at the altar. Nobody from the tribe of Judah served. That Judah was the kingly tribe, not the priestly tribe, right? For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Oh, this started to make sense. Now I see why David said, my son will come from the order of Melchizedek, because Jesus comes and makes sense of it. And then it goes on to tell us in verses 15 to 17 that Jesus has much more in common with Melchizedek. Look at verses 15 to 17. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you remember last week when we were studying Genesis 14, Genesis 14 describes Melchizedek's priesthood in a way that gives a perpetual sense to it. It doesn't give Melchizedek's lineage. He's not a priest based on lineage or genealogy. And because of that, we never hear of his birth or his death. He kind of floats onto the pages of Scripture and floats off. So it has this perpetual element to it that left commentators scratching their heads. But Jesus' priesthood links to the order of Melchizedek because he does not serve as a priest based on his bodily descent from Levi, just like Melchizedek's priesthood wasn't based on genealogy. Jesus does have an indestructible life. We know the story. He dies and he rose from the dead. And that gives him a perpetual priesthood like the one connected to Melchizedek. So you're looking at all this. You have the sign, that flashing neon sign saying the Levitical priesthood isn't what it's all, isn't what it's all about. There's something more. But it's all kind of hazy. I see the signs, but it's like the yellow pickup truck. And then Jesus comes. He's not from Levi. He's from Judah. And he looks like the priesthood of Melchizedek. And all of a sudden, click. It makes sense. You see it. You, you know it when you see it. And so all these three strands together, verse 11, verse 12, and then you know when you see it, Jesus coming, verses 13 to 17, make, come, all come together to show the insufficiency of the old priesthood. Or as verse 18 says, for on the one hand, a former commandment, that is the whole, that's a one word summary of the whole priestly system, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. That's the summary of everything that's been set up to this point. Verse 18 there, into verse 19. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of our passage. Look at verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. God didn't just say, hey, this is worthless, useless, it's bad. Yes, it couldn't make everything perfect. That was designed by God to show us our need for something greater. But even though it didn't make anyone perfect, it laid all sorts of patterns out that he was intentionally laying out so we would be pointing forward to Jesus. It was the shadow. He was the substance. Do you see what's going on here? you got to see that it was not perfect. It couldn't perfect you. And yet you also see its value pointing forward. See, there's something greater coming. A new hope. And it's not Luke Skywalker. It's better. A hope through which we can draw near to God. The hope of a new priesthood. And that is what verses 20 to 28 give us. 
They're telling us then about the sufficiency, the glory, the splendor of Jesus' priesthood. And again, there are three reasons given for this whole idea of how great Jesus' priesthood is, the new hope. The first we see in verses 20 to 22. Jesus' priesthood is better than the old priesthood because it's secured with an oath. You see, when God inspired David to write Psalm 110, he knew the idea of a Melchizedek priesthood was a tall cup to swallow. Melchizedek was an obscure figure that only appeared in three verses of Genesis, nowhere else in the Bible. But the Levitical priesthood was this massive albatross, chapters and chapters on them. We have a whole book of the Bible named after them. There's a whole system built around them. So when God inspires Psalm 110, verse 4, look at how he framed it. Verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The Lord has sworn. You see, it comes with an oath. Just like God did when he made his covenant with Abraham, he confirmed it with an oath. And now, now as he foretells the coming of the Messiah, he again affirms it with an oath. Now, God's word in itself is sufficient. He he doesn't need to bind himself with an oath. But for our sakes, so we could see just how important this is and how much he's binding himself to it, he swears that it will be so. And in contrast, the Levitical priests were never set up with an oath. Because God had designed that old priestly system to point forward to the new system, to the new covenant, and that's why he didn't establish it with an oath. But when Jesus' priestly order was announced, it was guaranteed with an oath. Look at how verse 22 concludes. Based on all this, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, we're going to learn more about this better covenant when we get to chapter 8. But I've got to give you a little sneak peek because it involves an actual change in our hearts. It allows our very natures to be changed. The Levitical system couldn't change the heart. No system could do that. No man-made system could do it. The Levitical system couldn't do it. I mean, you just keep sacrificing the bull or the pigeon or whatever it is over and over again. It's not doing anything to change your heart. I did it again, sinned again, sinned again, sinned again. Or today, say your Hail Marys. Observe that monthly fast or month-long fast. Sacrifice to that idol over and over again. But no, none of that can change the heart. Only the new covenant inaugurated by Christ's blood can do that. And that's why Jesus is the guarantor of that covenant. That's why God swore this new order into being. Because this, this, what Jesus would do, was the real deal. 
This was the substance to which the shadow of the Levitical system pointed. Jesus' priesthood is better than the old system, and the presence of the oath in Psalm 110 alerts us to that. It's also better because of the permanency of it, and that's the next point in verses 23 to 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In the Levitical system, priests would die and a new one would have to succeed him. And again, this was kind of a designed failure. It showed the limits of the system. But Jesus' priesthood is permanent. You see, if there's someone who really can mediate between God and us, he's not going to die just like everybody else every 80 years or 60 years or whatever it would be. That's really the one who's going to mediate between God and me? No. He needs to be a permanent mediator, one who can do it. You see, there's limits in the old system. Jesus' priesthood is permanent. He died, but he did not stay dead. He rose, and he lives, and he reigns eternally. Now, verse 25 is a dynamite verse. It unpacks two massive implications of his permanent priesthood. And the first massive implication is unending salvation. Look at verse 25 with me. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Or if you're using the Pew Bible, there's a footnote there. Save completely or save at all times. He is able to save at all times those who draw near to God through him. Jesus' salvation is not for a season. If you have the New American Standard Bible, it says he's able to save forever. If you have the living translation, it says he he can save once and forever. The point is this. His rescue of us, his salvation of us, lasts as long as he will last, which is eternally. Now to bring this home, think about this reality. If Jesus ceased to exist, our salvation would go up in smoke. Because he is our righteousness. And he is our intermediator with the Father. He is death's conqueror. So if he somehow ceased to be, gone would be our righteous standing. Gone would be our peace with the Father. Gone would be our salvation. Gone would be our victory over death. Yet, yet, we need not fear because Jesus lives eternally and is thus able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Isn't that great news? It's a 
first implication of the permanency of his priesthood. Unending salvation. The second implication we see at the end of verse 25, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because the basis of our unending salvation is Jesus' unending intercession. That's the second implication, unending intercession. According to Romans 8.34, if you are in Christ, if you've put your faith in him, if you're following him, There is no charge that can be brought against us because he's perpetually interceding for us. Oh, those decisions I made that the older I get, the more I regret those. The more I see their shadow on my life. Oh, those bends of my heart that are bent towards sin that... Each passing year, I realize, oh my goodness, what is it about me? Can't bring those charge. Those charges can't be brought against you. Because Jesus is standing there continually holding up his scarred hands to the Father saying, they are forgiven because I absorbed the wrath that you should have poured out upon them for that sin Your wrath has been satisfied. They have my righteous standing. He stands there interceding for us. And because of the Son's perpetual intercession, we, we are perpetually viewed with Jesus' righteousness. The penalty's been paid, and our salvation is thus eternally secure. Unending salvation based on His unending intercession. So stop exhausting yourself trying to earn your way into God's good favor. Don't try to be your own priest justifying yourself before God. Draw near to God. How? Listen. It's not through how good you are. It's not by meeting society's value of what a decent person is. It's not by doing your religious to-do list. That's not how we draw near to God. How do we draw near to God according to verse 25? Draw near to God through Jesus, through Him. The one who's perpetually interceding for us. So He's offering us perpetual salvation. Stop banging your head against the wall of your own attempts at righteousness. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop heeding the self-help mantras and the religious to-do lists that are all man-made. Draw near to God the only way we can, and that is through Christ, who offers us unending salvation on the basis of His unending intercession. See what I mean? Jesus' priesthood is sufficient. Verses 20 to 22, it's, it's better because of the oath. Verses 23 to 25, it's better because of its permanency. And now, verses 26 to 28, it's better because of Jesus' perfection. Let me read verses 26 through 28. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The third reason for Jesus' priesthood being superior to the Levitical system is that Jesus was wholly sinless. It's better because of his perfection. The author's not subtle on this point, is he? Holy, that, that would do it. Innocent, oh, that will do it. Unstained, separated from sinners, okay, we get the point. He is perfect. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer uh, sacrifices daily for his own sins. But let me say this. I love the poetic beauty of how God designed the shadow and the Christ to which the shadow points. Listen to it. In the Levitical system, fallen man was trying to play the role that only someone who was perfect could play. That's, that's why the Levites had to make continual sacrifices for their own sins. But not so with Jesus. He is perfect and thus does not need to make sacrifices for himself. In the Levitical system, a perfect animal was to pro- trying to play the role that only a perfect human could pay. You see, our sin, human sin, demands a human penalty. But a perfect animal is trying to play that role, and that's why lamb after perfect lamb after perfect lamb had to keep being slaughtered. Because it ultimately couldn't pay it. But not so with Jesus. Jesus, a perfect man, made himself a perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. Do you see the beauty of the the shadow and the way it points to the substance of Christ. The insufficiency of the old priesthood paves the way for the sufficiency, the supremacy, the beauty, the glory of Jesus' priesthood. It's better because of the oath. It's better because of the permanency. And it's better because of Jesus' perfection. Three betters. And you see how verse 28 brings all three of those betters together? For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Oath, perfection, permanency, better, better, better. You see, all of us are here this morning, despite the snow, for the same reason. I know, somebody's thinking, oh, 
Yeah. Painting with a broad brush again. He doesn't know the only reason I'm here is because of a cute girl. First of all, I know that you're here because of a cute girl. Pretty much any boy who's come to Christ after the age of 14 always starts with, I started going to church because of a girl. You're not original. But that's not my point. Sorry. I know there are a lot of different presenting reasons why we all come. My parents are here and I should come with them. Interested, curious, whatever. But deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, we all, everyone in this room, shares one thing in common. And that is all of us grasp that there is actually something profoundly wrong with us. I know it. You know it. Let's just cut the charade. We all know we're deeply and inherently flawed. Even though, even though most of us grew up in the self-esteem generation where nearly every outside voice was telling us how great we are, despite that, against overwhelming odds, we know there's something broken inside of us. Like Lady Macbeth, we're all anxiously trying to wash it out of our hands, saying, out, damn spout, out, I say. But all the blood of the old priestly system can't wash it away. All the priestly intercession from fellow sinners, dead or alive, can't wash it away. All our best deeds, all our best efforts can't wash away the spot. And so we're left with the cold reality for all our efforts we are sinners. At our church, we say we're not a museum for saints. We're a hospital for sinners. All, all alike sinners. All alike in our natural condition, damned. Except. Except. Except for Jesus. The perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect intercessor whose blood deals with the relational problem we have with God. He satisfies the wrath of God whose blood ratified a new covenant that can actually change our hearts who rose from the dead and stands now today. In fact, even at this very moment, interceding before the Father on our behalf. So let us then, every one of us, let us then draw near to God through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is our firm foundation. 
we don't get to you through anything else but him. But you have provided this great sacrifice and you designed it from the beginning all the way back with Moses. So we'd know it when we saw it. This Jesus who is our permanent high priest, this great priesthood that we all need.